0: Well, good morning. Somebody asked me last night before service, so what's your prop going to be today? I said, I don't have a prop. He said, you always have props. I said, I don't always have props. He says, well, it sounds like you always have props. I said, it'd be pretty difficult this week because I'm going to talk about a 22-foot bayliner boat. And after the first service this morning, somebody said, I have one, a 22-footer, but I don't think they're bringing it in. I came across uh, this story. I didn't think it was, you know, it's on the internet, so you know it's true. Um, Actually, I didn't believe it was true. So I looked into it and actually went to Snopes, you know, that website that evaluates those Email stories that you get, and they said we didn't think it was true either. And then a representative from Bayliner contacted and said he actually uh, was a service representative and had encountered this. There are two versions of the story. uh, One of the one guy from Bayliner says they both happened at, at different times. Uh but there's one up at Lake Stevens in Washington, but also another one down at Lake Isabella in Bakersfield, California. This family, totally new to boating, didn't know anything about boating, bought a twenty two foot bay liner and headed over to Lake Isabella, you know, they trailered it over there, they launched the boat, parked the car, took off, and were so excited but disappointment came their way pretty quickly because the boat just wouldn't go. I mean it would just kind of put putt, puddle on and uh, he, he, had, he had moved the throttle forward. He had read enough of the owner's manual that he knew if I moved the throttle forward it's supposed to go faster. He, it would sound bigger. But it wouldn't go faster, you couldn't figure out what in the world. So they called somebody and said, well, there's there, lakes like Lake Isabella, there's a marina usually, and they all have a service department. And so they headed over to the marina, and sure enough, there was a, sh- a shop there. They went in, talked to one of the service technicians and explained, this is the deal, we just got this boat, first time out, it's just not doing what we think it should. It doesn't gain any momentum. It, and uh, the guy said, well, let me, t- let me come out and take a look. So he comes out, evaluates it on top and looks around. Everything looks, looks fine. Engine looks fine. So he went back in, got a snorkel and a mask and dove underneath the boat to see if something was messed up underneath. Maybe something was caught in the propeller. He came up having almost drowned laughing underwater. He's spitting out water. The reason is the trailer was still attached to the boat. The, the Bayliner representative, uh, had a, he, had a, he had another story, he said the Lake Stevens in Washington State that happened, they didn't have to go under the boat, they actually just went over and you could see the license plate for the trailer underneath the boat. Are you kidding me? That sounds like something I would do, a mountain boy, Colorado boy coming to Florida trying to figure out boating. Sitting here trying to make it go, trying to get some progress, but being held back. I've talked about how I think Paul might have been a cyclist. He also very possibly, the Apostle Paul, was a boater. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 3, we're in the midst of this series. As a community, as a church, during this critical season, as we're beginning uh, a new chapter, in the life and ministry of Northland. We're looking at the giant secret of joy. It's based on a phrase by G.K. Chesterton that the joy is the gigantic secret of the Christian. We're keying in on the book of Philippians. It's a book that Paul is writing chained to a Roman guard 24 seven And he's writing to a church he started years before in Philippi, a Roman colony about 800 miles away, and he's writing about joy, that joy comes from the gospel. It's not necessarily a smile, it's not circumstantial happiness. Joy can be had by a follower of Jesus because Jesus is enough even in the midst of a fallen world. And sometimes joy happens with tears. And he's walking them through what it means to rejoice. And we're in a section where he's talking about joy comes from maturity in Christ. Maturity is not a destination, it's a rhythm, it's a process. You don't say, hey, I've become mature. Maturity is, it's dynamic, it's not static, we've never completely arrived. Paul is modeling that. And in this next section that we're about to start reading, he's talking about progress. The progress of mature. Verse 17, if you don't have a Bible, if you don't own a Bible at all, ask us in the back. We'll be glad to give you one. If you don't have one with you, you can follow up on the screens. Verse 17, Philippians chapter 3. Join together in following my examples, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Now, as he's talking, see if you can spot some trailers that are attached, could be attached to your boat. I'll identify them here in just a moment, but things that can hold us back from making progress, or if you want to approach it from the positive side of the spectrum, what are things that need to be present in our lives for us to be making progress? Verse 18, for as I have often told you before, now tell you again, even with tears, We're going to come back through it and go, go through it in more detail, but let me remind you where we are. Just last week, we talked about mirrors of maturity. H- how do you know? What are some indicators that you're maturing? We looked at three. There are plenty more, but three that Paul mentions in the couple of verses preceding this. Uh, perspective will be growing in my life if I'm maturing, where my, my thinking is being influenced with Christ's truth. I'm al- uh, patience, where I'm aligning my life's mysteries, my life's questions, my life's I don't knows with Christ's enoughness. A third one is progress, where I'm aligning my growth with Christ's intent. So I'll be making progress, but it will be according to Christ's intent. Pay close attention to that word intent. It's important. So here we are, we're listening, not just as individuals, we're listening as a community at a critical time in our story called Northland. Excuse me. And as Paul's writing to the Philippians, he's writing to the Northlanders. He's saying, guys, you need to make some progress, but make sure the progress is according to Christ's intent. And I'm referring to something he says just a couple of verses earlier. We looked at it two weeks ago, verse 12. Philippians chapter 3, he says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Now notice, he is pressing on to take hold, but he's taking hold not just of anything. You're not, you and I aren't making up, okay, we need to take hold of this. Christ has taken hold of us. If I'm a follower of Christ, he's taken hold of me for a reason. And Paul's gripped by that reason. And so often in religious communities, we get off kilter right away because we're going after the wrong target. We're in the midst of Olympics. Uh, and I love the Olympics. And story after story comes out of those summer Olympics back in Athens. Long ago, a target shooter shot gold medal in, in, in hand. All he had to do was hit his target. And on the last of the three-shot uh, three event... He shot the target, hit the bullseye, but it was the wrong target. It was the target in the lane next to his. And so often we're aiming at the wrong things as, as church communities, religious communities. We're, we're making things up. Paul is saying, hey, there's a distinct reason Christ took hold of me, and that's what I want to take hold of. Now, that phrase, take hold, Paul uses it. There are two other times that he uses that phrase. Both of them are in, when he's writing to a younger man of God, a, a, a mentor, a protege in a sense, Timothy. In first Timothy chapter chapter six, verse twelve. In verse verse twelve he says, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold. There's that that word again. It's translated in English, take hold. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. So in Philippians, he says, I want to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. best commentary in Scripture is Scripture. Where else does he use that phrase? Two other times. Here it is. He says, Timothy, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, taken hold of. And then a few verses later in 1 Timothy 6 verse 18 and 19, he's talking about some people that are, are as they're, for Timothy to instruct these people regarding their biblical financial stewardship and generosity, and he says, Uh, They need to do this so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So the two other times Paul uses that phrase take hold, he's talking about life. It's not just heart beating life, lung breathing. It's what many of you know I refer to as life with a capital L. It's the life of the gospel. It's what Jesus summons us to. He did not come to make you and me religious. He didn't come to get us into church services for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning when it was convenient. He has a grand scheme, a grand intent for the cosmos to renew it and front and center in that renewal that's in process right now begun with his crucifixion and resurrection, culminated with his second coming, the second advent, he is summoning the cosmos to life and front and center in that process are his images, men and women that he is summoning to come alive. John chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, he says, please understand something very important, I'm the gate, whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but let me tell you why I've come not to start a religion, not to start institutional churches. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Aren't all human beings alive? Yes. Heart beating, lung breathing, but we're told very clearly we're dead in our trespasses and sins. The penalty of sin, the wages of sin is death. And what death does is it mutes us as human beings, it, de- it muffles. Our humanity separates us from that ultimate purpose of glorifying God. Yes, we can laugh, we can cry, we can work, we can play, we can create, we can relate, but it's under a blanket of sin, and we're separated from the glory of God. And Jesus said, I've come to breathe life back in you for you to function as human beings are meant to function. Yes, we're hampered by fallen bodies and a fallen world, but that process has begun. That's his intent. You say, well, that, one of those phrases that Paul talked about is taking hold of eternal life. Doesn't that just mean getting assurance of heaven? Eternal life is not synonymous with heaven. We'll experience eternal life in heaven in an undiluted, unencumbered way, but eternal life starts now, John chapter 5, verse 24 and 25, very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, Jesus says, has eternal life at that moment and will not be judged, but has crossed over from this realm of death to this realm of life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming, and has now come, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live." If you've come to Christ, that's been fulfilled. I who was dead, I heard His Word, I responded, I said, I want to admit my sin. The penalty for my sin is a penalty that will take me all eternity, infinity to pay. But Jesus, you've come as the infinite God, man. You died on the cross, not for your rebellion, but for mine. And I want to ask, I want to take you up in your offer, and I receive your payment on the cross to be credited to my account so that I can be forgiven. And when that happens, his spirit comes into my life as a human being, and I'm made alive. And I have a status I never had before. I who was dead am now alive. But here's the deal, we will vary, we will not vary in terms of how alive we are in Christ, but what we will vary is the degree to which we experience that life and the degree to which we give that life away. And Paul is saying, let me tell you something, I want to take hold of that life for which I was taken hold of, and I want you to press on as well. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. There we go again, there's this purpose, this intent. What's that purpose and intent? For those God foreknew also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Coming, becoming like Jesus, who is the first fully alive human being to walk on the face of this planet since Adam and Eve before the fall. To be conformed to the image of a son so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And that phrase firstborn describes not just Jesus through his resurrection, he's the firstborn of the new humanity. Men and women that are now going to be fully alive, that's why we're called in Hebrews chapter 12 a church, but what kind of church? Verse 20, he says, you come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. Verse 23, Hebrews 12, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. So who we are as a church is we are a church of those men and women who are following Jesus in the life of his resurrection, who have been made alive by his grace through his work on the cross and now are figuring out how to image him as community. with his life, and amazing how we have shrunk that in our religiosity. We've reduced following Jesus, we've reduced maturity. Let's talk about progress, am I making progress as a Christian? And usually we'll reduce it to, well, Bible knowledge and, and keeping some rules. Are those important? Absolutely, as long as they're leading me to life. And as long as, by the way, the rules are biblical mandates and not man-made rules. Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 39, He says, you study the Scriptures diligently. These are serious Bible students, and He's rebuking them. Why? For the study of scripture? No. He says, uh, because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. He said, yes, devour this book. It's the word of life Paul has already talked about. He's referred in Philippians to this being the word of life. Devour it, but let it lead you to me. Don't just turn it into a religious knowledge encyclopedia. That's not maturity, and it's not progress towards Christ's ultimate intent. How about keeping rules? Man, I've been in some religious communities. they got weird rules that are nowhere in this, in this book. But there's subcultural standards whereby we can identify one another. Here's what Jesus has to say about that. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 27, he goes to the most religious people of the day. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Anybody got that verse on their refrigerator? (laughs) Jesus is calling some people out. Are we to walk in obedience and abide by the Scriptures? Of course. But these are people that are are making stuff up and they're doing it to mask their deadness. Which is why Jesus in John 14 verse 6 says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. We're to relate with Him as way, patterns of behavior, yes. We're to relate with Him as truth, doctrine. Orthodoxy, theology, yes, but also life, and we don't pick one of the three. They're way churches, they're just about following rules. They're true churches, they're just about getting the the Bible notebooks full. They're life churches and they can turn in, and if they don't have the other two they can turn into self-improvement mantras and clubs. Jesus says, embrace me as way, as truth, and as life, all three. My intent for you is for you to come alive. Let me explain to you the truth about that. Let me show you the way of that and go breathe life into the cosmos, into your community, into your culture. That's the progress that we're aiming for. That's the target. So now let's go back. I'm calling this Pilgrim's Progress in honor of John Bunyan's 17th century classic Pilgrim's Progress. We talks about making progress on the journey toward the heavenly city. So now let's go back to our, our Bayliner boat. The trailer's underneath. I'm not making the progress that I want to be making towards this target of, of, of experiencing the life of Christ and giving it away. What's holding me back? Here are four choices that I've got to make to get rid of the trailer. Choice number one is that I and we will need to choose community over isolation. We will not make progress if we keep the trailer of isolation on our, our boat of, of maturity in Christ. Go back to the text. He says in verse 17, join. What's that next word? Yeah, let's try. <laughs> yeah, let <laughs> Let's all uh, say it. Join what? Together. Together. What do you think he means by that? I think he probably means together. Join together in following my example. Uh, Brothers and sisters, just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. And this is right in line with what he said in the previous verse where we finished last week. Verse 16, chapter 3. He said, only let us live up to what we've already attained. That word live up... Two is a Greek word, Storkin, that it refers to being lined up as an army or as a row of ships, but an army in line. It, it's a communal word. As we're living up to, we live up to in community, not in isolation. How are you doing on that choice? When I'm, I read, he says, join together and following my example. We privatize Christianity, we say it's about me and Jesus. So Christianity is immensely personal, but it's not private. Now I deal with this, I am, I'm one of those weird people that's got both introvert and extrovert going on, and it just confuses everybody. You know, it, 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 the introverts get mad that I go to the party, and the extroverts get mad that I leave early, and it's just, I never can win. But I'm, I'm more introverted than extrovert, which surprises people because I get up, and I, I stand and, and talk to lots of people. But I'm, I'd be very happy in a cabin in the woods for weeks just looking at bears. Uh, but my extroverted wife would not like that. But over the years, I have learned, and she, somebody was commenting on this last night, and she was sitting there, she said, she's seen me change because I've learned the value of, of, of community we need each other we need each other as examples and to taste that life of the gospel it happens in the context of community first john chapter 3 verse 14 john says we know that we have passed from death to life here's a primary indicator because we love each other anyone who does not love remains in death you hear that? I can be alive in Christ, but if I'm not loving you and walking in community, I'm still experiencing death even though I'm alive. And for us to taste the life of the gospel and learn to give it away, it's communal. That's why we, if Northland's big, but the, the bigger it gets, the smaller it needs to become. You're saying, what's that mean? That means smaller group community, Bible studies, dinners, teams getting together, walking together, doing this life together. Andy Crouch is one of my favorite authors and thinkers, and he uh, talks about a friend of his named David, who's a professional photographer and a great encourager and a technology Whiz, one of these people, you, you've, you've met people like that, they, everything's technology in their lives. And he did it well. He would text people, text Andy regularly with encouragement. Uh, he contracted cancer. Uh, he and his wife started a Facebook uh, page giving people updates of that. Finally the, the disease outran the, the drugs and the treatments, and he was in his final few days. And he gathered with his family and friends of whom Andy was one, and Andy said, each evening we gathered around David's bed, and we talked, and we sang, and they were some of the most holy, holy days of my life. And he said, I took away from that something. In the midst of all the technology that we're dealing with, he writes this, we're meant to build this kind of life together. A kind of life that at the end is completely dependent on one another. The kind of life that ultimately transcends and does not need the easy solutions of technology because it's caught up in something more true and more lasting than anything our technological world can invent. We are meant to die in one another's arms. Surrounded by prayer and song, knowing beyond knowing that we are loved, we are meant for so much more than technology can ever give us. Above all, for the wisdom and courage that it will never give us. We're meant to spur one another along on the way to a better life, the life that really is life. Why not begin living that life together now, he asks. Wondering why I'm not making much progress, could it be I'm I'm choosing isolation over community? Second trailer, second choice that I need to make to make some progress towards this goal of the life of Christ is choosing compassion over indifference when it comes to the unbelievers in my life. Oh yeah. Indifference toward people who don't know Jesus can impede my progress and can do that for us as a church in very detrimental ways, shrinking us into our little isolated subculture. Yeah, I've got to choose community over isolation and realize that church is not just about standing, staring at the back of somebody's head for, for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning when it's convenient. It's about doing life together. This is important. It's a gathering for celebration and exhortation, but it propels us. It's to be catalytic as we are dispersed and distributed into the community. And we're dispersed and s- distributed into the community not to be indifferent but to be compassionate towards other men and women who've who've not yet tasted the life of Jesus. Go back to the text, verse 18, Philippians 3, Paul says, "'For as I have often told you before "'and now tell you again, even with tears, "'many live as enemies of the cross of Christ.'" Even with tears. That's the only time Paul ever refers to his own tears. When he says enemies of the cross of Christ, it's not pejorative, it's not negative. It's just a statement of fact. If you're not yet a follower of Christ, he's not throwing a stone at you and saying you, you're opposed to him. but he says practically speaking you're an enemy of the cross of Christ, meaning you don't see the cross of Christ as necessary for us to be restored human beings. But Paul is saying this with tears. When's the last time there, was te- there were tears, there was compassion, and my thought about some of my friends who are not yet followers of Christ? Uh, even more, let's have a, a microphone drop somewhere just at random. It lands in your lap. We'd like to ask you to tell us the first names of five friends of yours who don't know Jesus that you're just doing life with. Five friends that you last invited to church, or a better man event, or a daddy-daughter dance, or golf, or fishing. See with unbelievers we tend to be in one of two spectrums. We see them as bad, the bad people, and, and we shirk away being intimidated, or we, we, the other end of the spectrum we see them as projects. And then we become manipulative, and if you're not a follower of Christ, I'm sorry if you feel like you've been treated like that by some other church people, perhaps Christians. Let's do life together. Let's engage with questions together. Let's embrace the I don't knows together. Paul said even with tears. I spent some time this week just chewing on that. And I kind of got wrecked thinking of looking at you this, this weekend. In a group of this size, a crowd of this size, it's, undoubt- it's undoubtable that some of you are not yet followers of Jesus, some of you, John 3.36. What he described. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on There is I confess to those of you who are not followers of Jesus that I have not reflected enough on my, my compassion for you of not seeing life, and, and that's on me. Am I modeling the life of Jesus? Are we modeling the life of Jesus? Are we inviting you in to the quest? Acts chapter 5 verse 19, Peter and his his buddies were in jail, but during—they were preaching the gospel, but during the night an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. And the angel said, go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new religion. No. This new ideology, no. These new rules, no. Tell them about this new life. If I were to go to Starbucks, just pick one, one of the larger ones, tap on a glass, hey could I have your attention just for a minute, I would just want to do a, a one-question poll survey. And it's just a hand raised, we're not going to take your addresses or names or anything. Here's the question. How many of you would say here in Starbucks, how many of you would say that church, whatever your experience of church is, how many of you would say church is life-giving? How many would raise their hands, 5%, 10%? May God enable us to have compassion, not indifference. And the compassion comes not from judgment or superiority, we're just beggars who'd like to tell other beggars where they can find the same food and grace. And the reason that we're compassionate about them tasting life is because we're actually experiencing life, and the truth of the matter sometimes is we're not compassionate about an unbeliever because we're not actually experiencing the Gospel ourselves. third trailer that will hold me back if it's still strapped on the boat. It's when I choose conformity over contrast. So what's a key to progress? Take the reverse of that statement, choosing contrast over conformity. What will slow me down, man, it's that isolation and that indifference. But what will speed me up is choosing community over that isolation. Choosing compassion over indifference and choosing contrast over conformity regarding the earthly city. You're saying, what in the world is the earthly city? It's a phrase used by Augustine in his classic, his treatise, The City of God, where after Rome fell, Christians were blamed. Because Rome had abandoned its gods, and he makes a defense, an apologetic for Christianity. It's brilliant. But he compares the city of man and the city of God, and saying, we're citizens of both, and we need to learn how to live in both. You can hear some of that in Paul, verse 18, Philippians 3 says, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. The contrast of us, our destiny is the life of the gospel, is the hope of heaven. Their God is their stomach, our God is the, the risen Christ. Their glory is in their shame, our glory is in the high view of the living God. Their mind is set on earthly things, our mind is set on larger perspectives than just what we can see and hear and smell and taste and touch. He says our citizenship is in heaven. Now the people in Philippi got that quickly. They were Roman colonies, very unique. You, we wouldn't understand it here, but a, Philippi was a mini-Rome. You lived in Philippi, it was as if you were in Rome, and you, even though you're in the midst of Asia Minor, they got it. They were citizens. They had dual citizenship, so to speak. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. You're a citizen of the city of God. You're living in the city of man, the earthly city. Don't conform. Live lives of contrast. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is—that which is good and, and pleasing and perfect. So, how do we contrast? I've, 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 ooh, I've had people talk about, come up and said, "Hey." And I've talked to them a little bit, and they say how they are persecuted at work. And the more I listen to them, I don't know if you've ever talked to somebody like this, the more I'm listening to them, I'm thinking, dude, you're not being persecuted uh, because you're a follower of Jesus, you're being persecuted because you're just downright weird. I mean, you're coming across in a way that is not reflective of Jesus. You you know what I'm referring to, and it's cause for me to look in the mirror and say, I want to make sure my contrast is one of of Christ's likeness and the life of the gospel, not just being religiously weird. Infrared imaging, you know that whole deal for satellites. I've I've watched way too many uh, combat movies, you know, you see the infrared, uh, the imagery, and it shows the heat signatures of the aliens, or excuse me, just people. You guys know what I'm talking about. All right. I want you to have that in mind. I'm going to read this text to you. 1 John chapter 5, verse 11 and 12, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I think that's fairly clear. Whoever has the sun has life. Whoever does not have the sun does not have life. If heaven's got an infrared looking at humanity, everyone are images of God created a mango day. We're 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 eating, drinking, laughing, playing, creating, sculpting, but there's something very unique—the heat signature. Those who are, are those who are alive. Those who come into a personal relationship with the Father through Christ and are engaging in the eternal life of knowing Him, John 17. And 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 so you get those groups of people together. Right now in heaven, right here on Dog Track Road, there's a big old heat signature. These men and women are alive. What's significant is we're the church of the firstborn. Church, ekklesia is the Greek word, the root word kaleo, to call. What have we been called? We've been called out of death into life. And when we get together, it's not just doing some religious club. It's men and women that have come alive and are getting together in authenticity, trying to figure out what does it mean to live alive. What does it mean to experience life? What does it mean for us to pursue and taste the life of Christ? Then we're dispersed. We're distributed. That infrared signature then gets all distributed out in communities. Here are five heat signatures in this company. What do they do, just get together and lock the door, get together one to somebody's office, or are they, are they there for life-giving reasons? Here, here 12 people over in this neighborhood, their heat signature, those who are alive. There's there's deadness. It's not them walking in condemnation or judgment or condescension, but walking, taking up the towel and serving. Oh! For churches to grasp this, for followers of Jesus to get this, we don't have to build up walls and defend ourselves from a culture, but to say, you know what? Jesus has called us, he's made us alive, and he has given us an intent. And Paul says, I want to take hold of that for which I've been taken hold of. And may we make progress along that way. Choosing community over isolation, choosing compassion over indifference, choosing contrast over conformity, not just saying, I don't want anybody to see my heat signature here. But there's a fourth way to get rid of a trailer, to have some progress, and it's, it's choosing confidence over timidity regarding the assurance of heaven. One thing that will slow me down, make me all sluggish, is me being timid about the relevance of heaven in my life. Go back to the text, next verse, verse 20, in the second part of verse 20 and 21, he says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly body so that they will be like his glorious body. We're told in Second Corinthians that we're in a tent. Now we've been made alive, but our body doesn't fully cooperate with that life of the gospel, but one day it shall not be so. One day we'll be given a body that's, that's consistent with the life. We're no longer encumbered by fallen body and the fallen world. And Paul is saying, let's live in hope of that. Let's live in the assurance of that. You ever heard the phrase, I don't want to be so heavenly minded that I'm no earthly good? You guys ever heard that? Talk to me, huh? There's never been such a person. Oh, there have been people that have been so escapist regarding heaven that they're no earthly good. But to... To have heaven on my mind is to give me confidence right now because I know the outcome. Paul's just said it earlier in Philippians chapter 1. We looked at it a while back. Verse 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. Hmm. He'll carry it to completion. He'll get us home. I was. Uh, Roman the, the hallways down at Bay Hill Club uh, this week and Arnold Palmer's golf club down there, and there's some photos of him and Jack Nicholas on the walls at Augusta. And it reminded me years ago, I was playing golf with some buddies in Arizona for a weekend. It was the weekend of the Masters, and Jack Nicholas was interviewed about how to play Augusta National, which is the golf club where the Masters is held. How to best play. It's a difficult golf course. And Nicholas said, Well, you got to play it backwards. You got to play the golf course backwards. That's the key. The reporter said, What are you talking about? He said, Well, you got to know where the pins are. guess is all about the greens, and you got to figure out where the hole is, and once you know where the pin is, and you know where you need to be putting from on the green to have the best shot at sinking that putt. But to arrive to that point on the green, you got to know where and from the fairway you need to be in order to approach the green, that way you need to back up to the tee. Of course, we're laughing. We're just trying to, when we hit, to keep the ball on the course. But there's something about that living backwards. You know what Paul is saying in this? He says, live your life backwards. Live your life backwards knowing that heaven's coming, knowing that ultimate reality is about something, something we're going to be ushered into, every tear wiped away, and here we've tasted, we've come alive, but we're going to be given bodies that are consistent with our new life. And therefore, live. Don't be timid. Okay, i got one, one last uh, uh, Olympic story for you for today. Chloe Kim, did anybody see her on Tuesday night? I went to a friend's house, I arrived just in time to see her competing for the gold, 17 years old. Just a protege snowboarder in the half pipe. That that event happens, you make three runs and your best run is the one that goes up against everybody else's best run or best score. Her first run she did, uh, scored a 93.75 out of 100. I mean, killed it. Nobody touched that. The rest of round one, round two, nobody touched it, including her. She, she actually stumbled, fell, so that score was discarded. Now we're in round three, the final gold medal round, and everybody keeps falling short. And so that 93.75 stood. She was the last boarder because of her, her status and her early preliminary scores, she was going last. And so as a result, the girl before her didn't top her score, Chloe Kim has the gold medal And now she's got to do her run. What do you think she did? She played safe, scoot down on her bottom. (laughs) Sometimes I wonder, do we really believe heaven's coming? Do we really believe what Paul says in Philippians 1, he who began a good work in you will complete it. What do you think he means by that? Will complete it. So go live. You're not gonna get to heaven by what you do. You and I are getting to heaven by what Jesus has done for us. Live out loud, live large. Chloe uncorked it. She attempted two 1080s and hit them both. And she ended up scoring a 98.25, almost perfect. Would you like to see it? Why don't you take a look? That gets me fired up. (laughs) I hope it does you. Let's stand together. Before we leave here, we're going to sing an anthem of men and women who are headed home together, and therefore we can live with abandon, following Jesus with passion, with life. We're going to sing about the great dance we're headed towards. In the meantime, we're learning little dances. Let me pray, then we'll sing, and then I'll give you the good word, and then I promise your kids will still be there, they've agreed not to give them away. So (laughs) Father, thank you for the privilege of doing this journey with people that want to know you, want to know your word, but not just in an academic sense, want to know your word in a life Monday morning sense. Would you give us the courage to make some progress as a church called Northland? where we're choosing community over isolation, and we're choosing compassion over indifference regarding the unbelievers in our lives, and we're tuning, choosing contrast over conformity with the earthly city, and we're choosing abandon, <laughs> great confidence over timidity when it comes to our journey towards home. Wet our appetites a little bit through your Word and this opportunity to sing this liturgy about the great dance together. I ask this in the name of the one who called us.